Okay, and welcome to episode 43 of Spurbs Herbs. Today we're doing an interesting herb called Zhao Xin Tu. Again, I apologize for my Chinese, but I keep trying. Uh, this is in the Latin Terra Flava Usta. And in English, it is furnace oil or oven earth. And we're going to find out why it's called that in just a few minutes. So without any further ado, why don't we kick off this Spurbs Herbs. So on today's episode, we are going to be looking at a relatively obscure Chinese herb, Zhao Xin Tu, or furnace soil. I had never heard of this herb, and I'm really looking forward to learning about it. You never know what may be an interesting addition to the usual formulas. So that's what we're looking at here. And as always, we will look at something a little different. Today we will talk about a text that has been lost for centuries, but was recently found. This is the Jin Shang Ren, which is uh, translated as the Holy Priest Jin Jin's Secret Prescription. So we're going to talk about Jin Jin as well as this text. So it'll be really interesting. Hang on for just a minute before we get there. So boy, oh boy, do we have a deal for you today. Uh, we, we started this in our last episode. It's probably going to continue for a few more episodes, but it is a huge deal. We have spent years preparing our How to Understand Drugs as an Herbalist series, and it is finally complete, and we are celebrating. Celebrating with the biggest deal we have ever offered on any of our CEUs. You get our complete 45-hour course with CEUs and a lovely frameable certificate of completion for half off. We already have low prices. This is half off of our already low prices, but we're including so much more. We will throw in a signed copy of my book, Integrative Pharmacology, Combining Modern Pharmacology with Integrative Medicine. Of course, it's signed, so it's priceless. But if you were to buy the book unsigned, that's $70 right there, $69.95. So that's a that's huge addition to this deal. Plus, you will get an additional two-hour course. I think one of our most important courses that we offer, Interpreting Chinese Medical Research for Free. Absolutely free. That is an amazing course, and I think it really helps inform the when you do er, searches for drug-herb interaction. So it's a perfect addition to this whole series. And that's still not all. We will give not one, but two hours more of any course you want, any of our courses that are available, so you can get whatever you would like. This is 49 hours of courses in continuing education, a free signed book, a and a lovely certificate. That is a value of $809.95 worth of amazing products for only $337.50. Just go to www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org slash megadeal. That's M-E-G-A-D-E-A-L, and that's Integrative Medicine Council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L dot org slash megadeal. Get your discount right now, but please hurry. This is a limited time offer. Like I said, probably going to offer it for only a, a few more podcasts. So uh, get it sooner rather than later. All right. So with that under our belt, let's get into today's episode. <clears throat> We're going to start by talking about Jin Jin. Now, now, 
I've studied Chinese medicine and I've taught Chinese medical history and I've studied Chinese medical history. I'm not saying I'm an expert at it. I'm nowhere near uh, Paul Unschuld, who is a fantastic historian of Chinese medicine. Uh, or, or, and there's several others out there as well. Um, I'm not that good. But I had never heard of Jian Chen, and I was fascinating as I started to learn about him and his story. So he was born in 688 CE, so that's, uh, you know, what we don't say AD anymore, so CE after, in the CE meaning common era. So in present-day Yangzhou, and lived until 763, um, so that was, you know, 76, 75 years, so he was, that's good for ancient times. At age 13, he visited the Buddhist temple and was impressed by the statue of Buddha and renounced the world, entering the priesthood at age 14, so young. Eventually, he became an expert in medicine and opened a temple as a place of healing. He preached in modern-day Xi'an. If you're not familiar with Xi'an, that uh, literally translates as the western capital. It was the capital of China for, for uh, very long periods of time, and if you've ever seen the Xi'an uh, soldiers, Xi'an warriors, that's where they're, they're based. Uh, that uh, makes sense because that was the capital. Uh, and uh, so he preached in modern-day Xi'an and became a renowned scholar and organizer of relief efforts for the poor. He re returned to Yangzhou after six years and became an abbot of the Daming Temple there. While lecturing there, two Japanese priests and emissaries, Yoei and Fushou, asked him again. I don't know my Japanese either at all, so please excuse my pronunciations. Uh, asked him to come to Japan and teach the priests and nuns there. They were sent by the Emperor of Japan to bring Chinese priests back to establish an authentic ordination for Buddhists, which was lacking. So Buddhism was very strong in Japan. There was... Uh, Definitely uh, a lot of Buddhist thought around and disciples of Buddhism, but there was no way to actually ordinate any Buddhist clerics or, dis or you know, um, holy men. So the emperor wanted that to happen. So he sent out these two emissaries, and then he came across Jian Jin. And Jian Jin said, sure, yes, I'll be happy to go. And he attempted to go to Japan not once, not twice, five times unsuccessfully. Let me tell you, this guy was very dogged. He, on the fifth attempt, he became blind from infection. So here he is, he five times, all told this was over eight to 10 years. Uh, you know, he finally got there after 10 years. So very long period of time, and he's blind, and he decides to go back for a sixth, sixth time. So finally, on his sixth attempt, and 10 years later, he made it to Japan. He was greeted by the emperor and established Todaiji, which became the first ordination platform. So what the emperor wanted happened. He got a really nice uh, Buddhist priest and was able to create an ordination platform so that they could actually create Buddhist priests in Japan. They didn't have to go elsewhere. He retired. He was only there for four years. He retired four years later in 759 and started a private temple, the Tosho Daiji, and as well as a school at that time too. Now at this time, it doesn't say it all in here, he was very close to the aristocracy, but the emperor, he really supported him, really wanted him to happen, gave him, actually uh, my understanding is the Tosho Dai 
G was actually going to be uh, a home for, I think, the princess or something along those lines. And he gave it to, to him to establish as a temple. And um, because he was so close to the aristocracy, this be Buddhism became very well established in Japanese aristocracy. And Buddhism uh, spread quite rapidly among the aristocracy as well. And what he really did was he introduced the Ritsu school of Buddhism and focused on the Vinaya or monastic rules of Buddhism. I'm not a huge Buddhist. I'm much more into Taoism, so I'm not sure exactly all the different schools and of thought and all that, but this is what he brought to Japan. So in our last episode, we discussed the amazing Sensei Miao, one of <coughs> one of China's greatest physicians. He's definitely considered one of the, the best physicians to come out of, of, of China. And here's the weird thing. Um, he had a friend uh, Dao Xuan, Dao Xuan um, was a good friend of Sun Tzu Miao's and learned medicine from him. But Dao Xuan, Dao Xuan was a Buddhist priest and he founded the Nanshan, he founded Nanshan Buddhism in China. So he was quite prevalent as a, as a Buddhist priest. So this is not unusual. Sun Tzu Miao, if you read his stuff, it's very, there's a lot of Confucianism in it, but there's a lot of Taoism and a lot of Buddhism. It, it was very much sort of a product of the day with Neo-Confucianism and this combination of Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism as well. So I think a lot of um, his Buddhist thought, I don't know if it came from Dao Xuan or if it was enhanced or just it was a great conversation, but that he played a role. They exchanged information. Dao Xuan um, discussed Buddhism with Sun Tzu Miao. Sun Tzu Miao discussed uh, medicine with Dao Xuan. So Dao Xuan passed this knowledge of medicine to his disciple, Hong Jing, who passed it on to Jian Jian. So Jian Jian was a second or third generation away from Sun Tzu Miao. That's pretty amazing and um, gives him a lot of access to a lot of Chinese medical information. But Jian Jian went on and also learned a lot of medical and pharmaceutical knowledge at the Imperial, Imperial Hospital and Pharmacy Garden in Beijing. So he stayed there for a couple of years and learned a lot about herbalism and pharmaceutical knowledge and all that. So Jin Jin was quite the doctor in and of itself. So he's a doctor, he's a Buddhist, it's a Buddhist priest. I mean, just an amazing man all around. So in addition to being proficient in Buddhism and medicine, Jinjin was also very proficient in other things such as calligraphy, architecture, sculpture, art and crafts. These all play a big role in Japan. He had a big influence on art culture in Japan as well. Not really a focus of what we're talking about here, but that is, uh, this comes from this, these, these other aspects of, of his proficiencies. And he was also very proficient in the five sciences. And the five sciences of Buddhism refer to five academic fields. One, phonology and grammar, so talking and grammar. Two, technology. Three, medical science. Four, ethics. And five, study of a scholar's religion, in this case, of course, Buddhism. So he was accomplished in all these. He was a very accomplished. He had disciples. You know, I keep talking about him going to Japan, but he actually had a retinue of about 150 people who accompanied him. So he didn't come alone, and he didn't do all of this alone, but he was certainly the main guy. 
who brought brought along all these people. So when he arrived in Japan, he had this large retinue. He had a number of herbal medicines, spices, and medical books as well that he brought with him to help establish himself in Japan. So Japan, uh, at this time, formulated traditional Chinese medicine into compo medicine, suitable for the constitution of the Japanese people. Now, this last little bit, suitable for the constitution of the Japanese people, that actually came from, this is all based on a couple papers, and one of them was a scientific paper. You can see it in the bibliography. And, and what was interesting is this is a quote from them, and I, 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 I kind of get that this group of people was from Japan, but they kind of have Chinese names, and not really sure I know. Um, you know, I they're very common Chinese names. I'm not sure if they're also common Japanese names. So I don't know if the, the writers of this were from a Chinese bent or a Japanese bent, but they said suitable for the constitution of the Japanese people, which is interesting because compo medicine is herbal medicine, and it's it's actually pretty advanced herbal medicine, uh, and they have their standards in Japan for compo medicine are the same as pharmaceutical medicine, so very high standards. Um, so there's no reason why it's not suitable for a lot of other people other than just the constitution of, Jap- of the Japanese people. Um, so that's what's happening in Japan over time. Uh, but going back to Jianzen, as, as mentioned, after six eastward crossings, he was blind in both eyes, but he was still able to identify medicines by smelling with his nose, tasting with his tongue, and touching with his fingers. He corrected many wrong methods of drug identification in Japan and taught the Japanese how to collect and concoct drugs, which added a lot of pharmaceutical knowledge to Japan. He brought 36 kinds of herbal medicines from China to Japan with appropriate formulas. He built a medicinal garden in Tosho Daiji Temple to grow medicinal herbs and distributed them to patients to treat their illnesses. So there you go. So, But before he actually arrived, in the Asuka and Nara periods, 6th to 8th century, so remember this is happening, seven, he landed in 759, so this is uh, you know a couple hundred years to about the time he arrived, traditional Chinese medicine was adopted in Japan, and the first medical law was enacted during the reform period, the early 8th century, so that's maybe about 50 years, 40, 50 years before Jin Jin actually landed in Japan. Uh, he actually, Jian Jin actually wrote a book, an original book called Jian Sheng Ren, which they're translating here as Holy Priest Jian Jin's Secret Prescription. So this is an interesting book because we know about it because in the ancient literature in the 9th to the 10th century in Japan, so this is a couple hundred years after it would have been written, uh, such books as Fujiwara Sukeo's book and Fukani Sukihito's book, Jian Shengren's Secret Prescription was mentioned. So we know this book existed. We have a copy of it. We haven't seen it. It hasn't been around, but we know it existed because these other books referred to it. Uh, the in Shinho, and I have in parentheses in Shimpo, I guess those are just different ways of saying it. I don't know if that's the whole title with the parentheses or if it's a different title uh, for the same book. was written in 984 CE and is the oldest medical book in Japan, uh, consisting of 30 volumes expounding the importance of foreign medical literature such as traditional Chinese medicine, 
to the development of Japanese medicine. And it was mentioned in that book as well. So however, that is one of the books that we were talking about. Um, however, Jian Shang Ren's secret prescription has been lost for a long time. Jian Jin brought a lot of precious prescriptions from China to, to Japan, but the prescriptions were lost. So we know they existed, we know they were important, but we did not have them anymore. We don't have this book. Recently, though, through a thorough search, the prescriptions originally brought over by Jian Jin were discovered. Lei Yu Tian wrote a book in 2009 called Three Treasures Be Published. And here's the interesting thing. He is a 52nd generation disciple from Jian Zhen, and the prescriptions from the Jian Shang Ren are included in this book. Not all of them. Originally, there were 1,200 prescriptions in the uh, Jian Shang Ren, but only 766 prescriptions are still known. So, so think about this for a second here. This is what this is saying is those those formulas from Jian Zhen were not lost. They were just they were still passed down uh, orally, verbally amongst the the priests of of this sect of Buddhism of, of the the priests from this this temple. So they still existed, but they were not well known. They were relatively carefully held secrets by the Buddhist priests. And so this this fifty second generation disciple Lei Yu Tian decided he it was his role to publish this and make them more public. So he did that uh, at this point about 13 years ago. And so now we have most of those formulas that were, were uh, brought over by Jian Jian. So what I don't know is if this book has been translated into English. I would love to take a look at it based on all this history, but I'm not sure it actually has been translated into English. At least it's existing in Japanese at the minimum. So with the publishing of this book, the majority of Jian Jin's formulas are once again in the databanks of Japanese medicine, having been passed down through centuries of tight oral transmission. This is a wonderful recent addition to the history of Chinese medicine in Japan, and who knows what study of these lost formulas may have to modern Chinese and Japanese medicine. We don't know, but it's fascinating to when we, we get these tidbits of history coming back, it's really fascinating to see what they say and compare some of the formulas that we have with modern day. What did they do back then? Do we modify anything that we do? Are there some interesting perspectives on the medicine that we, we haven't discussed? But it's always exciting. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, if this, uh, now that this is in my mind, I'm, I'm very curious to see how much, if this is gonna affect Chinese and Japanese medicine into the future. I'm gonna keep my eyes open for this. Uh, this this book and, and these formulas. So there you go. So that's Jin Jin and Jin Shang Ren, the book. Uh, so uh, interesting. You know, we're always learning more and exciting things. I mean, we have the Long Wang Dui, if you're not familiar with Long Wang Dui tomb, that's something I'll probably talk about at some point. But that um, was only discovered in the 70s, uh, so about 50 years ago, and it had uh, the oldest existing medical books, like, it pushed back uh, our oldest Chinese medical book. So it was fascinating to see what came out of that tomb. So uh, very interesting stuff. Anyways, with that, why don't we get into today's herb? So today we're talking about Zhao Xin Tu, uh, or Oven Earth. Actually, what Zhao Xin Tu actually translates is at least 
from uh, this was from Bensky uh, textbook, our hearth core earth. So two means earth. Sheen means heart. Um, it actually is the 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 um, ideogram for heart. Um, so and I'm assuming Zhao means core or something along those lines. So it's like earth from the core of the heart is another potential translation here. But hearth hearth core earth uh, is how they translate this. So other names for this include ignited yellow earth, hidden dragon liver, or fulangan. We're going to explain where that may have come from in just a second. Huang Tu, or just yellow earth. Huang Tu means yellow earth. Um, in Japanese, it's um, buku yukon, and in Korean, it's uh, jos josimto. Again, I don't know how this pronounced Korean uh, at all, so please do that. But this hidden dragon liver, this fulangan name, is explained by Dao Hongjing, in Bensky's as a, as a, as a translation and in, in insert into Bensky and his team's book, uh, which is one of the, the, the three major textbooks we use and will be using today when we're looking at these herbs. So um, this is what Bensky and his team says. This is the yellow earth under the moon-shaped area between the pair of cauldrons on a stove. Because the stove has a god, it is call thus called hidden dragon liver, a roundabout way of avoiding the direct mention of his name. So it's referring to the god of the stove, basically. Um, so hidden dragon liver. All right. So the category of this herb, according to Bensky and his team, um, is in the stop bleeding subcategory under the full category of herbs that regulate blood. So there's a regulate blood category, and then there's a couple subcategories, one of which is herbs that stop bleeding. Chen Chen. Uh, has its own just total category that they call stop bleeding herbs, so they don't put it under the regulate blood uh, category. It's just its own category. And Brandon Wiseman, uh, remember Wiseman wrote sort of a, a dictionary for translating Chinese terms into English. So um, his his um, his their translations are very technically correct, and I love them for that. But they also sound a little bit weird to our ears, but this is what they say. They say is it, it is in a subcategory of astringent blood-staunching medicinals under the category of blood-staunching medicinals. So it's interesting. So Chen Chen has this category of stop bleeding herbs. In Brandon Wiseman, they have the category of blood-staunching, which means stopping bleeding um, medicinal. So they have the same category, but Brandon Wiseman does several subcategories under that, and I think that's fascinating because I just learned them all as a big jumble of stop bleeding herbs. This way, they're very specific how they do it in these subcategories. And so this is the subcategory of astringent. So astringent, it holds things in, blood-staunching medicinals. So that's, a, that's um, I think, a, a more specific, more technical way of, of saying what this herb uh, category of herbs belongs to. And I appreciate that, Brandon Wiseman. So... Uh, it is acrid and or spicy and warm and enters the spleen and stomach. And what's interesting is all three textbooks agree on this, which is actually quite a rarity uh, uh, to have it agree on all the characteristics. So and we see that a lot on this herb. I think part of that is because it's a little bit more obscure. There may not have been as much thought about it, um, but I think it's it's really good and interesting that we have all our major textbooks agreeing on this, and we're going to see a couple other things they agree with too. And one of those is the dosage. The dosage is 15 to 30 grams. And again, all three books agree on this. That has not happened up to this point on Spurbs Herbs. So really interesting. 
And they also all say it should be wrapped in cheesecloth and quote unquote pre-decocted. I think two of the word two of the texts actually said pre-decocted. The other one just explained what it meant, but it was the same thing. So basically you wrap it in cheesecloth and you decoct it and then you take it out before you add other herbs. So you're cooking the herbs in this in the in the water from uh, the the decoction from this from this herb, the Daoshin Tu. So uh, now here we have some disagreements, not a major one, but it's an interesting one. Bensky and his team in Chen Chen disagree on the original source for this herb. Bensky uh, and his team say it first appeared in Legong Pao Jir, Lun, or Grandfather Lei's discussion of herb preparation, which was written in the 5th century. Chen Chen say it first appeared in the Mingyi Zha Zhu, or miscellaneous records of famous physicians by Tao Hongjing in 500 CE. So 5th century, 500 CE, yeah, you could technically say there's, you know, 100 years difference between those, potentially, but maybe not. I mean, 5th century could be 499. Um, so it could have been, but I, I, I kind of think these are at least, these at least give us when this came into play. It's not one of the original cohorts of herbs. It's not in the divine, Shendang Ben Sajing, the divine farmer's uh, compendium. Um, but it's, you know, relatively early in, in herbal development, so 5th century. Uh, so there you go. At least they both agree on that 5th century here. So good quality. The text, I actually have good information about how this herb is created, which we'll cover in, in several slides when we talk about preparation, but none of them actually have a discussion of the quality of this herb. So usually under you know preparation, they also talk about good quality herb and none of them did. So I don't know exactly what is good quality here, but Bensky does and his team does say, the earth from stoves using coal as fuel is never used medicinally. So this should not be from coal ovens. And, and in modern day, I doubt any of this is from actual stoves. It's, it's just probably just soil cooked, you know, or um, treated in a certain way. Um, and I, I meant to look up and I didn't, I wanted to see if these were available in granules um, because a lot of herbs these days are, are sold in granules. And some of these are more obscure ones. You know, if you search, you can find them, but some of them you can't. So I was curious to see how easy it would be to find this in, in granule form. And I, 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 I just lost that thought uh, by the time I was done writing it and wanted to go uh, search things. So um, but it'd be fascinating to know how, how uh, readily available this herb is. So before we get into, you know, we've been talking about this is from the, the stopping bleeding category of, of herbs. Let's talk a little bit about bleeding in, in Chinese medicine. So according to Bensky and his team, there's a quote here, uh, bleeding will generally be due to one or more of the following causes. Blood heat leading to chaotic blood circulation, blood stasis forcing the blood to leave its normal channels, and spleen chi deficiency, allowing blood to leak out of its normal vessels. So we say that the spleen chi holds the blood in the vessels. And so if there's um, reduction of spleen chi, if, if, if there's deficiency of spleen chi, it doesn't have the strength to actually keep it in the vessels. And that's what we're really talking about here. This herb works to treat the last of these causes, that spleen chi deficiency, allowing blood to leak out of its normal vessels. So what are its Chinese medical actions? Uh, again, most of the books are 
right in the ballpark of each other. According to Bensky uh, and his team, Zhao Xingtul has the following actions, warms the blood and stops bleeding. For, and this is for bleeding associated with patterns of cold from deficiency. Remember, we said it's warm. So this is warming the blood. So we don't want to use this herb if there's heat. Remember, we said heat in the blood can actually cause bleeding. So if there's heat in the blood, we don't want to use this herb. But if it's a spleen sheet, spleen likes warmth. So warming it up is a good thing. So this will, especially if there's cold from that deficiency, this is a very good herb to stop the bleeding. It also warms the stomach and stops vomiting. For vomiting associated with stomach cold as well as morning sickness. So interesting. Not one of the herbs I think of first when I think about morning sickness, but it's an interesting uh, for me to have this now in my data bank, uh, potentially adding it into some morning sickness formulas. And it also stops diarrhea for chronic spleen deficiency diarrhea. Remember, we're talking about the spleen here. And the spleen and stomach, remember, are the, the channels, the centers. According to Chinese medicine, the spleen is the major digestive organ. Now, it sounds weird to a Western thought, but the reality is we're probably talking about, when we talk about the spleen in Chinese uh, medicine, we're probably talking about sort of a combination of the spleen and pancreas, which sits right below the spleen. So if you're doing anatomy, you would actually assume that they're, they, or you could assume that they're the same organ. So it makes kind of sense uh, historically and all that. So Chen Chen has similar actions and adds one. So it warms the middle jowl. So the middle jowl is the spleen and stomach, really, and the liver is in, in there as well, um, but stops bleeding. Uh, warms the middle jowl, stops bleeding, relieves nausea. Um, last time I said uh, relieves vomiting. Stops diarrhea. And this is the one that adds, treats skin disorders. So it can be used topically for various skin disorders as well. And Brenner Wiseman similarly say, uh, it warms the center, and again, center meaning this middle jowl, meaning the spleen stomach, and, and potentially the liver. So it warms the center and staunches bleeding. It checks vomiting and checks diarrhea. So stops vomiting, stops diarrhea. So very, very similar actions between all of these. So what are the preparations for this? So this substance is traditionally derived from the center of a double wok earthen wood-burning cooking stove after long use. It is usually collected when the stove is being repaired. The hardened bits of moon-shaped or tooth-shaped earth from around the edges of the holes for the wok are chosen, then scraped to remove the scorched blackened areas and ashes until the reddened hard material appears. It is then brushed clean. In some cases, yellow earth is simply heated until thoroughly reddened and hardened, and this is known as primal earth or yuan too. Now, my suspicions is this is where a lot of it is coming from in modern day. I doubt there's a lot of people going around to all the cauldron, you know, where there's uh, walks, double walks, and, and, and collecting all this stuff. It's possible, uh, but I don't think there's a lot of that going on uh, in these days. I think it's more of yellow earth is simply heated until thoroughly reddened. It continues, the stove-derived substance is also known as hidden dragon liver, the gulangan that we talked about earlier. It's, it's interesting in, in Chen Chen, they actually use gan as the Chinese name for it. In, in Bensky's, it's the Zhaoxing Tu that we've been using. And if I remember correctly, Brandon Wiseman is also Zhaoxing Tu. So um, here, Bensky is calling out, even though it says it's Zhaoxing Tu, but it can also be called gulangan. Chen Chen says, uh, as preparations, it should be wrapped in cheesecloth and pre-decocted for herbal decoction. Powder of this substance is used both internally and topically. 
And the suspension of Zaoxing Tu is sometimes used in place of water to cook herbs. The suspension is made by mixing 60 to 120 grams of the substance with water and pouring out the top portion before sedimentation occurs. The purpose of preparing the suspension is to obtain only the finest articles of Zaoxing Tu that suspend in water. The herbs are then added to the suspension, cooked, and the final decoction is then ingested. So basically what they're saying is just pour a good amount of this into a pot of water and then right off the bat, take off the amount of water that's on the top. So everything that sinks to the bottom is not going to be used, but everything that's on the top, the suspension on the top, you then use to boil herbs in. So that would be uh, another way to use this. So, And again, we're talking about a mineral here, so it makes kind of sense. We don't need to really cook a mineral in general in this situation. So um, as long as we're getting the mineral into our decoction, which we would through any of these methods, then I think we're getting the effects of this herb. So Brandon Wiseman, uh, in, in terms of preparation, say, uh, after decocting, remove the bag and allow any dregs to settle, then decoct the other medicinals in the clear liquid. And if you're not familiar with decocting, that means boiling, basically. It's what we do to our herbs. We, we, we do a lot of decocting, a lot of boiling of the herbs. And they say, alternately, alternatively, boil the 60 to 100 grams in water to make a water substitute for preparing decoctions. And it can also be used in powder. So similar to, to what Chen Chen were saying as well. So those are the various preparations of this herb. Let's move on, see if there's any Western uses of this herb, and, and really there aren't. This herb is primarily used in Chinese medicine and the PDR for herbal medicines, which is a, a big book uh, that looks at, has a list of all sorts of herbal medicines, including a lot of Chinese, not all of them, but a lot of Chinese herbs, does not have an entry for this herb at all. So there's no, um, it's hard for me to find any Western uses for this, and likewise, the American Herbal Products Association's Botanical Safety Handbook, uh, which is, again, a really large volume that I that has a lot of Chinese. It's, I'm, I'm really shocked at how thorough it is with Chinese medical herbs as well as Western herbs, and it does not have a monograph on this herb either. So, again, this is a relatively – if it's not in either of those and it's hard to find a lot of information, it's a relatively obscure Chinese uh, medicinal and one that I don't think is used super commonly. So bottom line is, couldn't find any Western uses for this. I don't think this is, there, there weren't a lot of walks in, in uh, the West uh, either. So uh, somehow I don't think there's a lot of Western uses for this herb. Vinsky, as usual, has a uh, nice commentary on this herb, uh, which I'm going to discuss with you. So Vinsky uh, says, acrid and warm, Zaoxing Tu enters the spleen and stomach channels, warming the middle to restore its ability to contain blood. It is used for blood in the stool or urine, continuous uterine bleeding, vomiting of blood, and nosebleed when due to spleen deficiency that is unable to contain the blood. Usually the color of the blood will be dark or washed out, and the patient will have a sallow or, you know, um, know, just a you know, sickly, like a, a white, maybe a little yellowish white complexion, cool limbs, a pale tongue, and a thin pulse. It is particularly good for bleeding related to digestion, such as vomiting of blood or passage of blood in the stool. It also warms 
disperses cold, warms the middle, disperses cold, stops nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Leisure Jen noted that it calms the fetus during pregnancy. So this is a, a fetus calming herb. We've got quite a few of them. Again, this would not be my first choice for that, but it's interesting that it has that effect as well. So continuing with this commentary from Bensky, they quote a, a, uh, a book. It says, in Convenient Reader of Materia Medica, which was written in 1887, so relatively modern, I mean, 150 years ago, but still relatively modern according to Chinese medicine, Zhang Bing Chong observed its flavors acrid to disperse rebellion and thereby harmonize earth. It treats vaginal discharge and continuous uterine bleeding and is a sage-like medicinal for patients with nausea. Its material dries and warms the spleen and stomach. Possessing the material of earth, it obtains the nature of fire and soft is an a of of fire and soft is transformed into hard. So again, this is earth and earth is one of the five elements and the spleen and stomach are of earth, the element earth. So this all kind of goes in a good circle according to Chinese medicine. So continuing with this commentary with the, from this book, its flavor has both acridity and bitterness. Its actions specifically enter the spleen and stomach to support yang and inhibit yin, disperse clumping and eliminate pathogens. It can be used for all bleeding disorders due to spleen and stomach yang deficiency, which renders them unable to control and contain. That's from a commentary from that relatively modern textbook or book. I don't know if it was a textbook. But the commentary continues. A large number of the ancient formulas calling for Xiaoxin Tu use it as a standalone ingredient, either taken internally or applied topically. So that's very interesting. The Arcane Essentials from the Imperial Library, which was written in 752 CE. So that's about the time that we were just talking about Jian Jian. So this is, uh, you know, it's still a few hundred years after this was first, you know, first written about, this herb was first written about. So the Arcane Essentials from the Imperial Library, 752 CE, records that for swollen sores, it is mixed with garlic into a paste and applied to the area. The paste is changed when it dries. Another book, Important Formulas Worth a Thousand Gold Pieces, which again was in the 7th century, says that for moxa, for moxa blisters, Zhao Xing Tu is boiled and the liquid poured over it. So I'm assuming that's cooled <laughs> liquid after it's been boiled. Continuing Bensky's commentary, taken together, its harmonious nature allows it to tonify without being cloying and to leach out dampness without harming the yin. Those are not easy things. We say that most herbs that tonify are cloying, and uh, when you leach out dampness, you have the potential for harming the yin. So it's nice that this is not cloying, and it, and it won't harm the yin. We're continuing. It can be used whenever dampness results from spleen deficiency or when the fluid pathways are not flowing smoothly. However, in Convenient Reader of Materia Medica, Zhang Bing Chung notes that while it strengthens the spleen and augments the stomach, its tonification is not as powerful as that of Dioscura rhizoma or Shanyao. Cooling heat and facilitating the removal of pathogenic dampness, these are its strong points. There you go. That's a really good commentary, which we have a little bit more of, I think. Yep. Oh, no, we don't. We're good with that. That's the commentary on that. Uh, a lot of interesting uh, stuff on the commentary there. So there's one combination that Bensky 
and his team talks about, and that's a combination with uh, Heloisitum rubrum or Churchizer, C H I S H I Z H I, Churchizer. Both herbs stop diarrhea and bleeding, but while Churchizer enters both the chi and blood aspects, Zhaoxing Tu specifically enters and warms the spleen and stomach. In combination, the ability of astringent Churchizer to secure abandoned disorders is primary with Zhaoxing Tu assisting and enhancing its effect in stopping bleeding. This combination is best used when cold from deficiency of the spleen has led to slipping loss downward, or hua tuo, that's the Chinese for that, of the large intestine. So slipping loss downward of the large intestine, causing such symptoms as sensations of cold in the abdomen and passage of blood in the stool. It's also used after chronic diarrhea has caused prolapse of the rectum. In addition to ingesting this combination, a fine powder composed of equal amounts of both substances should be applied locally several times each day. So that's in, in terms of the prolapse of the, of the rectum. So there you go. So interesting combination. Uh, again, not commonly. You know, uh, uh, rectal pro prolapse does absolutely happen, but it's not one of the more common things um, out there. So there you go. That's the combinations. So contents of uh, Zhao Xin Tu uh, contains silicates and oxides of aluminum, oxides of iron, sodium, potassium, calcium, and manganese. No, excuse me, magne magnesium. Sorry, magnesium. Uh, that's according to Bensky and their team. So we, get, we have that. Chen Chen very similarly says uh, silicic acid, so that's not, that's a little bit different, but aluminum oxide and ferric oxide, so it doesn't talk about all the oxides out there, uh, like, uh, like the sodium, the potassium, the calcium, uh, the magnesium that we have there, so uh, there you go, so that's the content, so really, again, like I was saying, we're talking about a lot of minerals here, uh, and so, you know, a little bit different than a lot of our herbs, there's not a lot of those organic substances that may have a, a medicinal effect, it's uh, in this case, so, but uh, minerals can be very helpful and useful. You know, before we, we move on real quick, it, you know, one of the issues here, and it, it's kind of sparking in the back of my mind, is it has aluminum oxide in it, and if you're of a certain area, era, and I am of that certain era, um, whenever you see aluminum and we're ingesting aluminum, or as they say down under, where I studied medicine, aluminum, um, they, the first thing that comes to your mind is Alzheimer's uh, because there was a theory there, I'm going to say uh, probably 80s and 90s, uh, last, you know, 1980s, 90s, where they thought aluminum pans and aluminum was contributing to uh, Alzheimer's disease, which has been disproven. So you can kind of get that off of your plate, but it still kind of sits there with me. It's funny how these things kind of, Kind of um, sit there, and the, and the and the reason why they said that is when they they looked at the the uh, tangles the uh, in Alzheimer disease, they found some aluminum in there. So there was some some question as to whether ingesting aluminum. But again, it's a mineral. It's out in nature. Our bodies are designed to take it. It just happened to be deposited in the in the beta plaques of of Alzheimer's. So um, you don't have to be worried about that aspect of this in this scenario. So, anyways, I just as I'm reading that, and I have. A few minutes uh, here, I figured I'd, I'd mention that 
as an issue, a potential issue. All right, let's talk about the science of this herb. There's not a lot. Uh, according to Chen Chen, uh, there were two studies where Zhaoxin Tu was one ingredient of many in herbal decoctions. And usually, I don't even mention these when they come up because, you know, when you get a whole decoction of a whole formula, you don't know what's actually working, what's not working. So I usually don't include these when I do it, but they're the only thing that kind of leads to any sort of evidence that this might be helpful. So again, it was in an herbal decoction with other herbs uh, to, and, and one of those treated bleeding disorders that had 108 subjects and one was to treat bacterial dysentery or bacterial infection of diarrhea. And that was in 90 children. So uh, the studies were, you know, smallish, but uh, definitely of, of um, statistical validity. Um, so there you go. I'm just not sure this really supports Xiaoxin tool as a super effective herb, just because there's a lot of other herbs in these decoctions, even if they had positive results, which they did. So, and I did do, you know, of course, I don't just go in Chen and Chen. I also do uh, my own research on it. And, and generally, uh, I use Google Scholar, not necessarily the best, but not exactly the worst of, of search engines. I'm not doing, uh, uh, you know, a capstone or a dissertation, so I don't have to um, do super in-depth uh, stuff. So I like Google Scholar. It's easy to use and generally gets good results. It's a little broad, but it generally gets good results. And a Google Scholar search here yielded no other clinical studies using this herb. So I just was not able to get much. I mean, I certainly found stuff on contents and, and um, stuff like that, but or mostly what I got, honestly, were just textbook entries of this herb, which... Uh, the textbooks we were using said the same thing and I thought were a little bit stronger, so I didn't use those at all. So not a lot of science around this herb. And, and similarly with drug-herb interactions, I did a, a um, search for interactions. I did um, I usually do three certain different searches when I'm looking for drug-herb interactions. I'll, I'll do uh, the name of the herb in um, Pinyin, which is the Saoxin tool. I'll do, uh, and I'll say drug-herb interactions uh, and cytochrome P450 interactions, or I just usually say cytochrome interactions, and P-glycoprotein interactions. Those are the three. Those, those two are the big interaction potentials for, for herbs. So I'll do it all three of those in Pinyin, and then I'll do it again in, uh, it depends, English or, or, or Latin. In this case, I just did the Pinyin because I knew I wasn't going to get anything from, from Latin or and English was kind of all over the place. And so um, I couldn't really find a consistent English translation, so I didn't use English. So I really did um, the Zhaoxin Tu um, for all of those searches and couldn't find any interactions at all whatsoever, which isn't surprising. I mean, this is basically dirt. Um, so it's kind of hard to, to get a lot of interactions with it. It's, it's nice and sterilized dirt because of the way it's been prepared, but um, so it's, it's safe but it's not, you know, there's no bacteria or anything in the dirt, but um, no, no real interactions came up at all when I did this search. There were some concerns about this from the, the various textbooks. So Bensky and his team says it is contraindicated for bleeding due to yin deficiency or vomiting due to heat. So if you have yin deficiency, you're vomiting, yin deficiency bleeding, then this is not a good herb for it because it warms it up. It's going to make it worse. Part of the aspects of yin deficiency bleeding is that warming makes the blood chaotic, as we mentioned earlier. So this isn't going to help that at all. 
and in fact, it will probably make it worse. And vomiting due to heat, this is good for vomiting, but remember it's vomiting due to cold. So if you have heat, this is a warming herb, so it will make the vomiting worse. And they continue later from the commentary on the Divine Husbandsman's classic Materia Medica. So um, I mentioned the Xinjiang Ben Sao Jing earlier, uh, which is the oldest existing book on individual herbs. This is the commentary on that, and this was written in 1625, so a good 1,400 years after the Xinjiang Ben Sao Jing. Uh, it, and they say it is not appropriate for vomiting due to yin deficiency. They kind of combine the two that we just said, don't bleeding due to yin deficiency, vomiting due to heat, and now we have vomiting due to yin deficiency. It makes sense to avoid it in that situation as well. It should not be used alone for swollen sores with overabundant toxicity that is hard to eliminate. So again, that toxicity often is heat toxicity. So um, throwing this in there is going to add heat and make it a little bit worse. So it shouldn't be used alone. Chen Chen has similar concerns saying it is warm in nature. Zhaoxin Tu should be used with caution in cases of bleeding arising from yin deficiency or in nausea and vomiting caused by heat. So almost exactly the same thing. They add, to treat sores and skin ulcers, combine it with herbs that clear heat and eliminate toxins. So they didn't say don't use it alone, which is what Bensky said. They just said here, kind of the same thing in the opposite direction. They said um, do use it in those conditions, but with other herbs. So basically they're saying don't use it alone. So very similar. The, the concerns are almost exactly the same as in Bensky's text. And Brandon Wiseman similarly say it is warm in nature, thus it is not suitable for loss of blood and yin vacuity or for heat patterns with vomiting and stomach reflux. So again, very, very similar concerns amongst all three of our major textbooks. And again, it's relatively rare in these scenarios. They, they don't usually agree. So that was, if, if you're asking me what I came, came away with was like how consistent our three textbooks were. One of the reasons why I consult all three textbooks is because I get different information from all of them. You know, they, they, they are similar, but usually have some pretty major discrepancies between them. And it's in those discrepancies that I feel like I can learn more about an herb um, sometimes than by everything being lined up. Um, so it's interesting that this herb just really didn't line up. It lined up really well. It didn't have those discrepancies uh, as I would normally see between these three textbooks. So, uh, and that tells me um, one of two things. One, this is a very straightforward herb and there's not a lot of controversy about what it does. That's one, one potential interpretation. That they, the other one is that this is an obscure herb, hasn't been deeply thought about. There aren't different, um, different views of it because just people haven't really thought about their views on it that deeply uh, because it's not used very much. So um, I suspect it's because of that second one, but I'd love for it to be that first one, that it's just very consistent. So um, interesting, and, and again, these are the sort of the questions you get when you look at multiple textbooks and, and can start to compare them. And so I think it's really important to do that, which of course, when you're learning this stuff, you just, you're just trying to get it in your head and pass the test. And, and it's, this is, when you're a student, this is really hard stuff to memorize. I, you know, consistently, our herbs are the hardest subject in Chinese medical schools. I've seen this at many, many, many Chinese medical schools. Their scores on those tests are way lower than they are on any of the other subtopics, like you know, just general theory or acupuncture, or, or even Western medicine can be tough as well. But often herbalism, because it's 
so much stuff you have to memorize and it's a it's almost a foreign way of thinking and piecing things together um, that's very difficult for students to, to have it all down and so when you're learning this you're learning from one textbook you do not have enough time or energy or even want to get into any controversies it's like what textbook am i being tested on okay that's the textbook i'm using um, so it's nice to kind of take a step back and kind of compare these textbooks and see where some of the discrepancies may be and where we can actually fill in our knowledge of some of these herbs. And so this, this herb is, is interesting in that aspect because there weren't those discrepancies for the most part. So there you go. So that is, that is really our herb of the, of the day. So in summary, we started our podcast today with a discussion of another of the great physicians of the world, Jian Jin, and his lost book, The Jian Zhang Ren. So that was an interesting introduction. I, again, I, what I love about all of today's episode is I just went in blind. I had no idea what this herb did. Um, I honestly, this, this Jian Jin, I somehow, I was doing research on something and I found an article on this, on this lost book. I said, ooh, I got to remember that. That'll be an interesting uh, something different. And so, again, I didn't know anything before. I just found this article, and then I did more research and stuff on it. So it, this, to me, is like one of those hidden gems of a Spurbs herbs. Like, I, I came in with very little knowledge, and I, I come out with a lot of knowledge. So I learned about Jian Jin. I learned about the Jian Zhang Ren. And, and then we discussed the interesting and relatively obscure herb, Zhao Xin Tu. A useful herb for stopping bleeding when the spleen is deficient and can't hold the blood in the vessels is one of the few stop bleeding herbs that is also warming. So that's that's another little claim to fame here. So that's that's a good one. So you know, bottom line, I'm not sure I'll be adding it into any of my formulas in the near future, but it's very nice to have in my back pocket if I need to do that. So that's really good. That was our episode. Wow, what an episode. So in our next episode, and it's going to be the last episode I record for the year of 2022. You probably won't see it until well into 2023, but it's um, taking a bit of a break over the Christmas time. So in our next episode, we will be looking at another Ayurvedic herb. Um, I don't even know how to pronounce it. Um, Shilajit or uh, Shilajit, Shilajit. Logit. I'll find out by the time I have to pronounce it 50 million times on our next episode. This is a very interesting herb. I have herb in quote marks here. Um, that may have some very, very interesting effects on modern diseases such as Alzheimer's disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, hormone imbalances, and even infertility. So why did I put herb in, in question marks? Because this is sort of, it, it's not really an herb. It's not something you can grow. It's something that you find that's sort of a uh, a decomposing organic matter. I, I, again, I don't go too far into it. I just get enough so I can actually put in the next episode and then I get really excited about the next episode as I'm researching. I get to learn a lot more of it. So I put urban quote marks because I'm not sure it's an herb. Let's find out in the next episode. And as usual, we'll be exploring something a little different. Will we continue our discussion of great physicians or maybe a completely new topic? Any way you look at it, our next episode will be interesting and excited. Please join us. Did I say excited? Interesting and exciting. Let me get my, my grammar correct. Interesting and exciting. Please join us. Thank you very much for making it through another uh, episode. If you like this, look, I, I'm 
I'm amazed. There's a lot of people that are, are coming in, 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 uh, and listening to this podcast. And I really appreciate it and watching it for some of you. Uh, if you did like, if you do like this podcast, please do us a kind of huge favor. Would you please give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast? We don't care what that is. If you're on Apple, if you're on, on uh, Spotify, if you're on, on uh, Android, if you're using uh, Overcast or whatever podcast uh, app you're doing, putting in five stars would just, oh my God, I can't tell you how much that would mean to us. So would really appreciate it if you consider doing that. Remember, you can get your CUs and NCCAOM PDAs at www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. That's Integrative Medicine Council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L.org. And if you want that huge deal we talked about at the beginning, just add a slash mega deal to that. You'll be able to get that huge deal. And you can always get in touch with me at drgreg at spurbsherbs.com or at our website, www.spurbsherbs.com. So love to hear from you uh, and uh, hope that you'll, you'll join us again. Appreciate it. And as usual, we have our Spurbs Herbs. The proceeding was presented by Dr. Greg Sperber. We would like to thank Janelle for all her support and everybody else who contributed to this program. Janelle. Janelle. Timothy, Timothy Dobbins, Dobbins. Rogers. Campbell. 